He had taken the day off of work, was in his foyer on his hands and knees with Clorox scrubbing the foyer floor. She went to court and got a restraining order against him and thought that that would protect her. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, writer-producer of CBS's Criminal Minds, and with me today is my co-host. Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor, back in the LA studio with Jim this Thanksgiving week recording. This is episode two of Thanksgiving week, Jim. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. And happy Thanksgiving to you, too. And I should say happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners who are probably today on the day we're dropping this episode are probably full of turkey stuffing, cranberries, and hopefully family fun. All right. Or about to be. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, great. So today I'm going to give you the opportunity, Francie, to ask me about one of my cases. Oh, this is great. So in other words, I get to use my prosecutor's cross-examination skills, Jim. Well, we'll see how good you are. (laughs) We are. I hope we are going to. Um, So, Jim, let's turn the tables. You're so used to being the guy asking the questions and in control. My turn. We're going to talk about a case of yours today. What kind of case is it? Well, Francie, this is a, a murder case. And it's one of my worst cases. And um, it's something that really sticks with me. So um, it's a difficult one to talk about. Well, let's start at the beginning then. Um, It sounds serious. I can hear from your voice that it's still uh, emotional for you, means something to you. Tell me, at what point were you in your career when you worked on this case? Very good question. This is actually the first case I worked on as a profiler. Oh, wow. So when would that have been, Jim, about? That was 1998. And where were you coming from? Like, in other words, your first case as a profiler, what had you been doing before that? Well, this was after I'd worked in the New York office and then went to Arkansas to work the Whitewater case and then Washington, D.C. to continue that Whitewater investigation and uh, do the, I did the Webb-Hubble prosecution and the Vince Foster equivocal death investigation. 
Then I worked major cases and cold case homicides in Washington, D.C., and then I was promoted to the behavioral analysis unit. So you would then consider that you had a wide variety of experience at that point in all kinds of different cases. Oh, yeah. Cases. That, that doesn't even cover the white-collar crimes, the crimes against children, the sex crimes, the abductions, all that kind of stuff that I worked in a number of undercover operations as well. So when you got promoted into the BAU, you had a wide experience. So tell me how you got this case. How did it come in? Well, this case came in when the prosecutor and detectives working the case wanted advice from our unit because they literally did not know how the case went down. We, they wanted us to do a crime scene reconstruction as well as investigative and prosecutorial suggestions. So you get a call, literally, in your office in Virginia from the prosecutor, the detective, or both, and they ask well, for help. actually, I didn't get the call. The case agent got the call, and uh, they set up a roundtable. And so this is something we do for many cases. We actually fly the prosecutor and the detectives in from wherever they're coming from. And this case, it was Akron, Ohio. And we do a roundtable like you see on Criminal Minds. I was going to say that, yeah. Only our table is a lot bigger, a lot more people, and it's not exactly round. It's actually sort of a U-shaped table and has all sorts of electronics in it. And we have a very well-appointed room with video monitors and uh, electronic chalkboards and so on and so forth. So we all gather for this consult. That's what we called it, the consult. That's our round table room. And as we sat there, uh, the first thing that's done, first of all, we don't want to hear about any suspects when we're doing this. And all we want to know is victimology and then the crime and the crime scene. Now, for the two people listening who don't already know what victimology is because they don't watch Criminal Minds, maybe, what is victimology? It's everything you ever could know about the victim. Their age, gender, education level, dreams, hopes, desires, relationships, family, work, anything that would be attributable to them as a person, that's what we want to know. And so in this case... The victim was Dr. Margot Prade, and she was a pediatrician. Uh, she had several offices. At least one of them was in a pretty bad neighborhood. It was basically a pediatric clinic, and it was something that you know she wanted to do to give back. In other words, she was not sort of an elitist doctor, she actually wanted to make sure that she was helping people in the poor neighborhoods as well. Well, and you said this was Akron, Ohio? So my dad grew up in Akron, Ohio, and I wow. think it's one of the reasons that he was such a tough person. I think the Marines had something to do with that too, but I think he was a tough person because Akron, you know, had some tough places, and he mm -hmm. grew up sort of hard scrabble there. Right. So we learned about her and, and her life and becoming a doctor and giving back to the community, and then we learned about her very tragic end, and that was she had pulled into the parking lot of her clinic in a pretty bad neighborhood, and while she's still in her minivan, somebody gets into the car, shoots her six times in the arm and the chest and the heart, and leaves her there. And about an hour, hour and a half later, when 
people started coming to the clinic, her body was discovered there. That sounds just horribly random and violent. Yeah. And so the prosecutor showed us um, actually a video of this happening. Wait, wait, wait. A video of what? Of her getting killed. Only it only showed part of it. So if you can imagine a TV screen. Down the street, there was a, uh, a car lot, a, uh, you know, a car sales lot. And there was a security video camera pointing at the car lot. But if you can imagine a TV screen and the top left corner of that video screen actually showed a little bit down the street. And it actually covered part of the parking lot in front of this clinic. And so when you enlarge that and enhance it and zoom in on that top left corner, you could actually see her van pulling into the parking lot, making a sort of a semicircular turn to the left and then parking into a parking space. But when she parked, all you could see was sort of the front end of the van up just past the front passenger door. So you're seeing the passenger side of the van. And very shortly after she pulled in, somebody walks up to that door, opens the door, gets in, a minute and 18 seconds later, gets out and walks away. And that's all you see. But during that minute and 18 seconds, she was shot to death six times. That's unbelievable. And, and Jim, you know, you know, as a former prosecutor, of course, as a former agent, how unusual it is to have direct versus circumstantial evidence of a murder. Yeah, except that the video only captured the killer from the waist down. Oh, no. Yes. And so there was absolutely no clue as to who did it. And it was gra so grainy that you couldn't even figure out what kind of shoes or pants the person was wearing. But it was pretty clear that it was a male. And so they're left with that and no idea who did this. Well, did you get any details about, did it seem to be a robbery? I mean, at some point you have to, you must have gotten into motive, potential motive. Well, we talk about the crime itself. And so what was left was her body. And there were six bullet holes. And there were several right through her heart, three, I believe. There was one through her right arm. There were two through her right side. They were the fatal shots, the ones through her heart, but almost all of them would have been fatal shots had there not been more. But she also had, curiously, on the back of her left triceps, that's the back part of her left arm, there was an upside-down bite mark. Wait, wait. So I'm trying to picture this, and I see the assailant is going to be on her right side shooting her. Yes. And yet you're telling me there's a bite mark on her left side, which is the obvious opposite side. Right. Of her which, body. And the prosecutor said, so we have no idea how that happened. And it took me about 30 seconds, but I said, one, she knows her shooter very well, and two, her shooter is left-handed. And they just looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, I'm looking at you like, what the hell are I know, you talking you about? You frequently look at me like that, <laughs> that Francis. So true. I'm just trying to like true. say there's a distinction here. She didn't even know me. So I said, you know, I can tell you exactly what happened in this case because it became very clear to me when I played it out in my mind. Remember, this bite mark was upside down 
on the back of her left triceps. And I said, I just have to ask you one question. Were these sort of captain's chairs? In other words, they were like in the van. It wasn't a bench seat, but it was two separate seats. And they used to call them in vans captain's chairs because they kind of swiveled around and stuff. But they said these were two separate seats, which are common in minivans now, but uh, they didn't swivel around. And I said, okay, well, this is what happened. When the killer got in the car, if the killer were right-handed, he would have pointed the gun. He obviously had a gun because he shot her. He would have pointed the gun at her to control her and maybe tell her to drive somewhere else. One of the things we found out in victimology was that she was feisty, that she was the kind of person who would stand up for herself and fight for herself. That does sound like someone we both know. Well, really? Hmm. I'm trying to think who that might be. <laughs> so what we determined was that she would have fought. And if the guy pulled a gun on her and she wasn't just going to automatically comply, and then she wanted to sort of reduce the threat, she would probably reach with her hands and push the gun away from her, which, if it's in the right hand of the guy sitting to her right, would have been more close to the windshield of the car. And she would have probably pushed the gun away to a non-threatening position away from her and towards the windshield. However, if the shooter was left-handed, then he would hold the gun between his body, the left side of his body, and the right side of her body. Right. And it would be between the two car seats. In order for her to actually push the gun away, she wouldn't pull it past her body and then towards the front of the car, she would rotate around with her body and push it to the back of the car. And if she put both her hands on it, and he put both his hands on it, as you can see as I'm demonstrating with you now, Francie, if we're pushing our hands to the back like this, what is exposed to you? I, can, I could if I wanted, I don't, but I could if I wanted have bitten your tricep. The back of my tricep, mm -hmm, right. right. Because the only personal weapon you had left, because both your hands are on the gun, is your teeth. And I said, so then, once he bit her, she must have let go of the gun. He regained control of it, started shooting her in the side, through the arm. And then after he got her injured seriously, he turned and shot her through the heart three times. What well, an incredibly violent, violent encounter. Yeah. She must have been... So afraid. Yeah. And so being the youngest and newest and not really totally trained profile in the room, um, people were a little shocked that I would be bold enough to say that. And the, the prosecutor and detectives asked me, well, we've had this case for months and never thought of that. How did you think of it? And I said, because when I played it out in my mind, I'm left-handed. And I saw that the guy came to the car door did not have the gun in his right hand when he opened the door. So he could have had it in his left hand. And so I played it out in my mind as a left-handed guy. You guys are probably all sitting around this table right-handed. So when you played it out, you played it out as a right-handed shooter. Yeah. And the bite mark made no sense that way. Right. But it does make sense this way. And so at that point, they seemed kind of happy that they now had 
a reconstruction of this crime that actually made sense, consistent with the forensic evidence. But they weren't really very happy. And I'm trying to figure out why. I bet I have a guess. Why? Because they've got a right-handed suspect in mind already? No. But the ex-husband of this victim is left-handed. Oh, dear. And he is their police captain. <gasps> what? Yes. So we then asked for details about this guy. And when they went to notify him that his wife had been murdered, he had taken the day off of work, was in his foyer on his hands and knees with Clorox scrubbing the foyer floor. Yeah, any Southern woman listening to this knows you don't scrub foyer floors with Clorox. Well, this guy was from the North, so maybe he didn't know that. <laughs> but, and then he said he was shocked and all that, crying, all that stuff. He said he had worked out that morning and had an alibi. And they, sure enough, interviewed a woman who said she was working out with him then. But then they um, did bite mark impressions from him, and they seemed to match the bite mark on the left back upside down of her triceps. And unfortunately, they couldn't do what's called a paraffin test, which is a gunshot residue test, because lo and behold, he was working with chlorine, and it invalidated the test. Because of the Clorox he was using. Yes. There you go. And so eventually they did a search of her home and what did they find in the attic above their garage but a listening device, actually a recording device that was recording her phone calls. So they discovered that the police captain well, was recording, somebody, somebody was recording the wife's phone right. calls. And funny enough, the very last call was Margot, Dr. Margot Prade, calling her mother and saying, I'm glad he's finally gone, but I'm very frightened. I'm nervous. If anything happens to me, it was him. Oh, Jim, and this is something that they didn't find until after you helped them identify him as a suspect, obviously, because it would have instantly made him a suspect. And so... I think that's one of the most interesting things about cases like this that, that we hope we're telling everyone sort of behind police lines information, and that is that you often don't develop the right suspect until you have that kind of full profile of what happened. Best Case, Worst Case is brought to you by Rockstar Games and L.A. Noir, the dark detective crime thriller set among the violence, glamour, and corruption of 1940s Los Angeles. Out now for Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, and PS4, L.A. Noir allows you to scour crime scenes, pick up and examine objects, interrogate witnesses, and determine who is telling the truth or lying to cover up a brutal murder. Solve crimes inspired by real cases from one of L.A.'s most violent decades. L.A. Noir from Rockstar Games, out now. Rated M for Mature. Order now at rockstargames.com slash L.A. Noir. So, he was arrested. The captain. In charge of these detectives. 
was arrested. That's a tough day for the detectives. Yes. And the captain, and his name is Captain Douglas Prade, the captain, it turns out, met Margot when she was 16. He was much older. And he kind of put her through medical school and tightly controlled her entire life. We would call it now coercive control. There were these indications all over the place. Eventually, she got her own on her own two feet and said, I'm not being controlled anymore. Stop this. And had to and end up throwing him out of the house. But he wanted to speak to the chief of police or the police commissioner. I can't remember which it was. And so the police chief went to visit him in jail. And the police chief said to him, look, there's a conflict of interest here. I can't sit here and talk to you without recording everything that's going on. So I'm recording this. And he said, I that's like fine. I like the police chief. That's a smart move, right. smart move. And so as soon as he turned the recorder on, Douglas Prade, formerly Captain Douglas Prade, started ranting about how bad bite mark evidence is, how unreliable bite mark evidence is. He didn't do anything else. He didn't talk about anything else. He just railed on for like 45 minutes about how poorly uh, bite mark evidence does in a court of law. So he so didn't forth. say, for example, I'm not guilty? I don't know if he did or not, but basically he just railed about this. And they were wondering why. And I said, behaviorally, you have to understand something. If he was a course of controller, then he liked to control everything in his life. And he would plan everything down to the minutest detail, right? I mean, he's recording our conversations. He knows she gets to the office early before anybody else shows up. He knows he, it's, a, it's a barren area where nobody's, there's not going to be any witnesses. He didn't have any idea that there might be a, a video camera block and a half down the street. But everything was planned to the detail, including an alibi witness. And I'm sure if you go back and really press that alibi witness, you'll find that that person is lying. As it turns out, they did. And that woman was a woman he was having an affair with, and she was lying for him because oh he asked my. her to. Oh, my. So back up to where we are now in the jail, and he's talking about teeth marks. Well, guess what? The bite was the only thing he didn't plan, Right. Because he, he didn't plan for her to shove the gun away. Rolling her with the gun and killing her, but not biting her. He had to do that. And it left evidence that he had not planned for. So it was the one thing that was like center of his mind, the thing that he didn't control. So he's now trying to control it after the fact. The one so mistake it, these offend, well, they almost always make one mistake. And it's just a question of do you have investigators and prosecutors who understand that mistake enough to be able to exploit it, take advantage of it, and prove their guilt because of it? Right. So it was a further indication of his guilt to me and to the rest of the profilers. And they prosecuted him, and he was convicted, and he was sent to jail for a very long time. That's fantastic, Jim. I have a question, though. How long a time, if you know, was it between when she either kicked him out of the house or told him she wanted to leave him and the time that he killed her? I have to say that I don't know exactly, but it was a fairly short period of time, a matter of months. And it took a lot 
for her to build up because she was a good person and she did feel she owed him a debt of gratitude. But in fact, when we look at that behaviorally, he was an adult. She was 16, probably beyond the age of consent for that area, but still the imbalance of power was very obvious then. She she had nothing. He helped her work her way up from just a teenager to a medical doctor and paid for all that. I'm sure he drove her places and controlled what she did and what she didn't do, probably under the guise of being helpful. But in fact, he was a major control freak. Well, you know, one of the reasons I ask is I talked about a case on Real Crime Profile recently. I was semi-filling in for you. You were away, and I was talking to Lisa and Laura about a case uh, that we had in the district attorney's office in Albany, Georgia. And in that case, which is similar, just sort of, I think, in motivation to the case you're talking about, we had a, a very brave woman who left a man who was abusing her, who was abusive, outright physically abusive. And he continued to abuse her, stalk her, and try to control her. And so she did what we tell victims to do all the time. She went to court and got a restraining order against him and thought that that would protect her. And the very next day, he shows up at her house with a shotgun, shoots her sister, who manages to flee the house, grievously injured but alive. The woman barricaded herself in the bedroom and called 911. And so everything that happened after that is captured on 911. Wow. And so you hear her screaming. You hear wow. him yelling at her. You hear him break the door down. You hear him shoot her, which we know later was in the leg. You hear her fall. You hear her continuing to sob and plead for her life. And you hear him say nothing to her. And then you hear him rack the shotgun and the shell hits the ground. And then you hear him cut off her screams mm. with the final shot. And then after that, he says, after she's dead, he has no idea she's called 911. He says, who's going to court now, bitch? Mm. Showing that this was all about you know control, power, vengeance, whatever you want to call it. And so that's why I was asking whether in your case... There was a relatively short time frame, but any kind of time frame suggests to me, and I'm sure to you, that the motive there was he could not stand that she was no longer going to be under his control. And he was going to make sure that he got his revenge. That's just horrible. Well, like that case, it's a terrible tragedy, but at least the bad guy was convicted in this case. Was he convicted in that case? He was. He was convicted. It was a death penalty case in Atlanta in particular, although the jury in that case declined to impose the death penalty, mm -hmm. which I always found somewhat inexplicable because it was absolute, 100% perfect, really, evidence. Well, as you know, I understand that. I do. But I think it's an emotional response, and I don't think the state should be doing things emotionally. But... That said, it was a heinous case, obviously. Well, it was. And what I want to know is all of our cases, we've talked about this, Jim, many times, so of our guests, almost all of our cases could be a worst or a best because someone has been killed or injured, beaten, stalked, whatever. Why, though, in particular, is this a worst case for you? Well, 
for a long time, for about 12 years, it was a best case for me. Um, obviously, it was the first case I did as a profiler. I was able to contribute and, and help them understand what actually went down. It made perfect sense forensically as well as behaviorally. And that really kind of launched me and my career in profiling because I think people understood I could actually do this job. And well, and that you were actually very instinctual about it too, clearly. But about 12 years later, the defendant, while he was in prison, got them to retest the doctor's jacket that Dr. Margot Prade was wearing, and they were able to find trace DNA from another male other than the defendant, her ex-husband. The former captain. Right. On that smock, and a judge determined that that was enough of a significant development that it would have raised reasonable doubt, could have, and so he released the captain from prison after those 12 years, and they decided not to re-prosecute <gasps> him. Now, I'm stunned. I'm stunned on two levels. I'm stunned because a doctor's coat is going to have of traced DNA from how many different people that she treats. And this is the same thing that we dealt with in the case of JonBenet Ramsey, that DNA collection techniques are now so sensitive that you can get what we call trace DNA that's actually an artifact that has nothing to do with the actual case, but could be on people's clothing. If she's wearing that, and doctors don't wash their jackets every time they see not. a patient or every day they go to work, they wear them all, all the time. In fact, they put them on and usually over their street clothes, so they're protecting their street clothes from that kind of stuff. So it always happens. And and there's so many different ways that that DNA could have gotten on that smock in that place. But yet, because technology has sort of outpaced our ability to explain it well, I think that that was misinterpreted evidence and it was not actually relevant to the case. Well, and you know, the thing that bugs me about that so much, Jim, and our listeners will know I'm, I am pro-prosecution down the line, uh, sometimes to a fault, and our listeners inform us and you inform me quite often to a fault. But here, I really do fault them. This is explicable. You can explain this away to a jury. And the evidence in the case is strong. You don't have eyewitnesses whose memories would become faulty over that 12-year period while he's in prison. I cannot see any justifiable reason not to retry that man if, of course, the judge's reasoning setting that aside altogether, because I think that's ridiculous. But even if the prosecutors were forced to retry the case, I do not understand why they didn't. Right. Well, and I think there's one piece of behavioral evidence that outweighs everything else. And that is that we know that shortly after she pulled up in that minivan, that the person got into the passenger side of the vehicle. I mean, she clearly was in control of the car. She could have just put it in gear and driven away. She could have backed it up. She could have run him over. She could have done all sorts of things. But she let him into her car. She knew the man who killed her. And he was left-handed. If the police captain did not do it, then why did he have somebody lie for him as an alibi instead of saying the truth? And why was he on his hands and knees scrubbing the floor so that his hands would have chlorine bleach all over them and not 
he we wouldn't be able to determine that he had shot somebody recently. Well, it's a very clear case of his guilt and a case that would have been, in my opinion, easy to duplicate 12 years later. It makes no sense that they did not have the courage. 12 years is definitely not long enough to spend in prison when you have savagely taken the life of someone that you, well, of anyone, but especially of someone you're supposed to protect, your spouse. Right, but also it's another case similar to the Nicole Brown Simpson case where somebody was coercively controlled over a period of time and then ended up being brutally murdered. And in the end, the killer, because he's a man, because of his position, because he's able to take advantage of technology or something else, He's able to walk free. I just really, it really does not sit right with me. And that's why it's a worst case for me. Well, Jim, thank you so much for talking about it. I think you and I talk all the time about crimes against women and children. I feel like in this society are often devalued. Um, And I think that very well might explain why they did not continue to pursue the case. Again, one last question. Do you think he, this former captain, is a danger to anyone that he dates or marries. Of course. I mean, he's not going to change his stripes. He was definitely a coercive controller. He was definitely somebody who took advantage of this young teenager, uh, took her under his wing for the purposes of controlling her, and then when she finally was able to stand on her own two feet and get away from him, that was the fatal event. And unfortunately for her, there was no ultimate justice. There was temporary justice. But um, I still believe firmly that he is guilty of killing her. And I feel that anybody that he has in his clutches would also be in danger. Well, Jim, there was definitely no justice in this case. I can certainly Mm -hmm. see why it is, if not the worst, one of your worst cases. Thanks for discussing it. Thank you, Francie, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And for now, we're signing off for Best Case, Worst Case. Happy Thanksgiving. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's D, the number two, L, dot org.